Well, thank you, church, for being so generous and, and giving. Um, uh, one of the other ways that we punctuate our service with prayer is to pray for the sermon. Uh, we're not so much praying for the sermon as we're praying for ourselves to receive what God teaches us in his word. So would you do that with me uh, briefly, Father, as we uh, turn to a particular passage in your scripture, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts to receive it and to learn from it and understand it, not just intellectually, but that our lives would be gripped and changed by it. And I do pray that it would make a difference in our lives going forward. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This might sound like a familiar story. It might be to you. A, a man had two sons. And this man was older, but not quite at the point where he's going to pass soon. There's still some years ahead of him. And the younger of the two sons uh, didn't want to wait for the inheritance. And so the younger of the two sons approaches the father and says, I want all of my stuff now. Uh, basically, I wish you were dead, but I just don't have the guts to actually kill you. Just give me my stuff. Um, and so to the older son's surprise, the father just gave it to him. And this younger son just left. Now, when that younger son left, all of the duties in the household, all of the agricultural duties, this farm, this land that they had that they were cultivating, all fell to the other son. They used to split the duties. Imagine one of your you know, siblings just didn't have to do all the chores that they were supposed to do, and now you've got to do double chores, right? And this is a big operation because this is a very wealthy family. And so while the older son is disgruntled and left behind to do all the work, the younger son is off just spending all the money until he's broke and poor and destitute. And he finally comes to his senses, and he goes, I'm either going to die here in poverty or go back and just ask my father, can you at least just make me a slave? Can you make me a cook in the kitchen? Can you put me with the pigs? Something, at least I don't die. And he'll at least, he at least treats his servants well. Maybe I'll just come back and be a servant. He comes back. The father meets him on the road. And what does the father do? He doesn't make him a servant, right? He restores him to sonship. And he gives him a robe and he gives him the ring that means I'm the family guy. I'm the number two or number three. Um, restores him, gets all the benefits. Now, we hear that story, and then when the story turns to the older brother who's upset, I've, I've been working, all these years I've been working, working double because of the son that left, never threw me a party, never, never killed a fattened calf so we could have some roast. I just have to work, 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 work. And then here comes this idiot. And he comes back, and it's just, here you go, here you go, here's all the stuff. And we hear that story, and we're like, man, what a jerk. Because we so quickly identify, as we should, with the prodigal son who left the house. But if you remember, when Jesus told the story, he was telling it to an audience who's supposed to identify themselves not as the younger son who left, but as the older son who's mad that the younger son came back. Why are they mad? The reason why they're mad is because they're looking at Jesus and they're going, Jesus is granting benefits to all these people who haven't gone to synagogue, haven't memorized Torah, haven't raised their kids to learn the Torah. They're pagan. They're Gentile. They don't have scripture. They don't know the law. And then Jesus is just like, come on, let's eat with me. 
And here we are going, well, we've been doing all this work. Interestingly, in that story that Jesus told, the father doesn't say, but work is stupid, son. You're not supposed to be doing all this work. I told you, you don't have to work. I'm just going to spoil you. Father doesn't say that. Why? Because the son should have been working. Work is good. But work wasn't the point. That's the problem. He thought sonship was based on work, and sonship isn't based on work, although sons get put to work. See? Why do I start with that story? Because this is the issue, the dilemma that Paul is trying to resolve in Romans at the end of chapter 9. You remember we, we left off before hitting those last few verses of chapter 9. And Paul has been talking about Israel and Gentiles. And in that story that Jesus told, the parable of the prodigal son, as it's usually called, the, Israel is the older son and the Gentiles are the younger son. And that's channeling uh, what's happening here in Romans. You have this new party, this new group that comes out of nowhere and receive benefits. And the party that's been the subject of all these pages of Scripture, Israel, throughout the Old Testament, and they're left hanging. He says in verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. There it is. Actually, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone in verse 20 and verse 32. As it is written, he quotes Isaiah here, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So what he's saying is the party that is Israel, the group, the people that is Israel, they had the law, they tried to live according to the law, and they missed salvation. Then you've got another group who didn't even have the law, and they got salvation. You've got one group that was trying to pursue salvation and never got it, you have another group that could care less about salvation, and then now they've got it. Well, we see this in our lives, I think, sometimes where you've got people that have grown up in church, and they've had a lot of exposure to truth, and they've memorized verses, and they're just jerks. They don't want to help people. You're always in their way. They only help you if you help them. And all the churchiness, the guise of all the churchiness, just gets what really gets revealed behind that curtain is a sort of ugliness of an unchanged person. Then you've got somebody who was a drug dealer, a, a gangbanger, or you know any any number of things that they're involved in. They were involved in drugs, or they were uh, you know multiple partners, you know. And then and then they come to Jesus, and there's something genuine about that change, such that all the days prior don't really add up to the person that they are now. And so what Paul is talking about here is it's not bad that you had the law, Israel. It's not bad that the older son in the prodigal son was working. That's not bad. What's bad is you missed the point. You stumbled over the actual truth about what sonship actually is. You stumble over it 
when you think that he can't be a son because of the bad things he did and that you should be a son because of the good things you did. See, you, you just tripped over the truth. And the truth is you cannot earn sonship. Sons get to work, and that's great. But you can't get in through the work. Doing chores at somebody's house doesn't make you a child of the father in that house. But the children in the house should be participating <laughs> in keeping the house. And so Paul, again, is not saying law was bad, that was so stupid, why did you do it? In fact, he commends them for, for the zeal that they pursued him with. Look at verse 1 through 4 in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They don't really know what they're doing. They're stumbling around trying to live out the word. They're trying to live out the Bible, but they really don't live it out, and they really don't have salvation. This is the danger uh, when churches talk about the Bible, teach the Bible, preach the Bible, but don't anchor it in the gospel. Because what you have is people that come to church and they're like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. Oh, here's what I'm supposed to do. Find me the magic verse that does this for me. Oh, I've got this problem in my life. What's the verse for that? And the Bible just kind of becomes a manual to help your life be better. But you're, not, you're missing the point if you don't see how all of Scripture is pointing you to exalt Christ in your life. That's a major difference. And so Paul is saying that you can have exposure to truth and completely miss salvation. You can be faithful in understanding the Old Testament, even the New Testament. And when we talk about God's laws, the things that he reveals that are our duty. God created us to worship him. Well, how do I worship him? Well, you read the Bible, and the Bible tells you don't do this and do that. It's full of rules and precepts and wisdom and explaining what is good and what is not good. We get morality figured out for us in God's word. But all of that figuring out is not enough. You can't just take an ethics course in scripture and live a life that's pleasing to God because without faith, you can't please God. And I, I love how he longs for them. He, he, he's not at this point chastising them, you dumb idiots reading the Bible. Forget the Bible. If you've ever met somebody who's like, I don't really read the Bible, I just want to love Jesus. You, you can't love Jesus. <laughs> It's like the son that, I want to be a, a child of this house. I just don't want to do any of the chores. Like, that, that doesn't work, but. And so he, he, he commends them in verse 2. I, I bear witness they have a zeal for God, but that zeal doesn't get them anywhere because it's not according to knowledge. That's ironic because the more they study Scripture, the more knowledge they have, but they're missing the one key piece of knowledge. They stumbled over the stone that he lay in Zion this rock of offense, if you believe in this stone, then you get it. If you understand this key piece, then you get the salvation. If you don't understand it and you try to charge past it, you trip over it and you die. That's the imagery. Well, what is that stone? What is that knowledge they were missing? Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, in other words, their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, there's so much to unpack there, and we'll keep it brief, but what he's saying in verse 3 there is 
also ironic because they are trying to get to righteousness. Maybe that's why you come to church. You know there's good and bad. You know there's good and evil. You don't want to be evil. How do you be good? Well, learn how to be good. How do you learn how to be good? Follow God's word. God's word tells you how to be good. Okay, great. So let me do that. But you might still not be in, actually. Because that's what happened to them. They were zealous for God, verse 2. And their zeal for God, they are trying to establish a righteousness, the middle of verse 3. They're seeking to establish it, but they're seeking to establish it on their own. And when they seek to establish righteousness on their own, apart from this stone that God gave, they trip over it because they want to do it on their own. And it's actually not a righteousness at all. It's not God's righteousness for being ignorant, verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. That's his righteousness. They wanted to establish a righteousness that's not God's, that's just theirs. And therefore, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, they don't get, they don't get God's righteousness, right? They don't get it. What's scary is how involved we can be in church and how much scripture we can know and still be lost. What's scary is how many pastors, professors, teachers teach up-and-coming pastors to teach the Old Testament and not get to Jesus. Don't, don't do Jesus. This is not a Jesus verse. It's not. Because if we read Bible verses and don't connect it to Jesus, what am I going to connect it to? Obtaining righteousness on my own. That's what I'm going to do. That's what we all do. But he's saying... Anytime you read what God is revealing about himself, anytime you read, read, when you're reading what God is saying, do this and don't do that, if you don't see that the point of all of that is Christ, you miss it. So he says in verse 4, the reason why they missed God's righteousness while they sought to establish their own righteousness was because they missed this important truth, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, right there, you might think he, what he means is the end of the law, like the law is done now. That was a dumb plan. God tried to roll out plan A. Plan A didn't work, so God's going to erase plan A and roll out plan B. Forget the law, just believe in Jesus now. Right? That would be like the parents going, look, I try to do chores. The kids aren't doing chores. The house is still a mess anyway. I guess the whole chore thing is stupid. Let's just dump the whole chore idea and let's just do something else. And that's not what Paul is saying. Because when he says end, he doesn't mean end as in kaput, over, we're doing something different. What he means end is the way the pastors at the Westminster Assembly meant it when they say, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not what is, when is man finished with, but what is the end? When somebody asks you, we don't really use it this way anymore, but you're doing something and somebody asks you, to what end? You know, what is the goal in what you're doing? And so he doesn't mean that uh, the law is over, but that the law is fulfilled, that Jesus Christ is the goal of it, that the entire purpose of the law all this time was to get you to Christ. In Galatians, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul calls the law a tutor. A nanny, you know, the, the role of the nanny 
isn't to be with you for the rest of your life, but the role of the nanny is to get you to the point where you can do some of these things on your own. And what he's saying is, in Galatians, what he's saying, what Paul is telling the, that congregation was, the law was always supposed to be sort of like training wheels. That tutor, that nanny, that guide, that mentor, that helped you out to some other purpose. That doesn't make the law bad, that's good. But if you never get to that purpose and you think you're okay because nanny's always around, that nanny can't save you. That nanny can only point you to what does save you. So the law was a good guardian. The law is a way to get to righteousness. But if you want to get to righteousness but not get to Christ, you'll trip over Christ. You'll stumble over him, and you will not have righteousness. Why? Because Christ is the very point of the law. He's the goal of the law. He's the purpose of the law. He's what the law was going for this entire time. So when I read the Old Testament, I don't want to just read what God is revealing and go, oh, cool, that's really good. I'm going to go live this now. I want to say, how does this point me to Christ who enables me to live this now? That's a big difference. If we miss Christ, we miss righteousness. If we miss righteousness, we're in the same boat with the elder brother who's spending all his energy trying to do work and is not really understanding the point of sonship. Just to confirm that what Paul is saying is not that Christ has brought the law to some end. I want to show you, we'll put this up on the screen, Matthew 5. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17 to 20. And he's pretty clear and forthright in saying, this is Jesus, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Has that happened yet? No. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest mark of the pen in all of the Old Testament will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you took your life and how you spent your week, this past week, and compare it to the average life of an ancient Pharisee, who do you think would win in terms of righteousness brownie points? You've got to take all your Netflix time, all the random podcasts you might listen to, sports games, you know what these guys were doing? Memorizing scripture all day. They wore it on their heads. They wore it on their hands. As they walked with their children, they, they taught it. You think you're cool with your Jesus shirt with the little ichthus? I mean, they wore the tassels, right? They wore it. They spoke it. They ate it. They breathed it. They followed laws upon laws. They even made up laws to make sure they didn't break these laws. What if we broke that law? We're that much closer to breaking this law. Let's build another fence of laws over here. And we're like, huh, legalistic Pharisees. They were zealous. They were zealous. And their pursuit of holiness can oftentimes make our pursuit of holiness look like a complete joke. So if we're too quick to diss the Pharisees, Jesus doesn't say, don't be like the Pharisees. He says, do better. 
than even the Pharisees. Now, how is that possible? How is that possible to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? I tell you, the way you exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees is to understand what they missed. What they missed wasn't a particular jot or tittle of the law. What they missed was the point of it. Jesus saying, I'm here. And even the Pharisees on their best week can't keep the law the right way. And they can't keep it all the way. So what Jesus reveals in the Sermon on the Mount is a misunderstanding on both sides. You've got the kind of person that says, I can get to God on my own. I just want to be good enough. I'm just going to try it on my own. And they're lost because they don't get to the point of the law, which is Christ. Then you've got the other kind of person that says, well, because I have Christ, I guess I don't need the law. And Jesus is like, no, you should be better at it than that person. And the only way that's possible is to see that Christ is the goal of it. You may have friends or attend other churches, brothers in Christ that don't go to this church, go to some other church. And at some point they ask you, what are you guys, what is your pastor teaching through? And maybe we were in Leviticus. Remember, we spent months in Leviticus. Remember, we spent months in Numbers. Why do we do that? We do that because we don't want to ignore the Old Testament. And each of those sermons should be pointing us to Christ. We shouldn't ignore the Old Testament in our devotional time. We should read God's laws and read what God is communicating about himself. Every jot, every tittle counts because Jesus makes it count. All of it is pointing to our need for Christ and how he accomplishes the law on our behalf. Back to Romans chapter 10. What Paul is going to do here, what Paul is going to do here is explain how this dilemma is important and this dilemma gets lost on us. And to understand that dilemma, he turns to Moses. We're just going to read one verse and then I'm going to take you to another passage that we're not going to put on the screen. I want you to go to it with me. We're going to read a hefty portion of scripture to understand Romans. Oftentimes we're like, wow, Romans is kind of difficult. It's a little less difficult if we do our homework in the Old Testament. Verse 5, he says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So here Paul is saying the law isn't bad. The commandments of God are not bad. Should you sit around the table with your family and memorize the Ten Commandments? Yes. Why are they still relevant? The things that God revealed to Moses to tell Israel, why are those things still relevant? He says, Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. Now, here's what's difficult. You just said you can't get righteousness. You can't get life with God through the law. And then Paul quotes the Old Testament and says, you remember when Moses told Israel that you will live by doing the commandments? You see why it was confusing. You see why it's confusing now. The commandments can't get you righteousness. They feel unimportant. But Paul's saying, no, no, remember the commandments get you righteousness. So to understand this a little better, I want to take you to back to the chapter that he's going to quote right now to help make sense of it, and that's Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30. Fifth book in the Bible. Actually, at, at CFC, we've preached through the first four books of the Bible 
And I guess at some point, we might as well, <laughs> we might as well do all the, the Torah, and we'll get to Deuteronomy. But right now, we're going to look at chapter 30, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now let's do a little reading to understand what's happening in context. You've got the, the people of Israel, they've been rescued out of Egypt, brought into covenant relationship with God. God is like, okay, you're my people. Now, as I'm going to take you into this promised land, and you're going to conquer these enemies, you're going to conquer these people and take this land for yourself, as I do that, let me remind you that if you are in covenant relationship with me, you have to live according to my commandments. If you don't live according to my commandments, you'll only get curses. If you live according to my commandments, then you'll get blessing and you'll get life. He states that over and over in chapter 28, in chapter 29, and then when he gets to chapter 30, he says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, notice there, when they come upon you. I've always read these chapters as, if you do this and if you do that, but if you really read it carefully, he's saying, when you do this and when you do that. In other words, he knows Israel is going to fail, but he promises to bring them back. He says, when these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there, the Lord God will gather you, and from there, he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. See? Verse 7, and the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes instead of you and on your enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. You see this heavy emphasis on obeying and commandments. Verse 9, the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and the fruit of your ground. For, that, for the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When does he take delight in you? When does he prosper you? Verse 10, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, the Old Testament, the Torah, when you, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today, now, now th this is almost funny, okay? It's not funny, but I mean... It's ironic, at least. Look, verse 11. This commandment that I command you today, the commandment to keep all my stuff, all my rules, without disobeying. For this commandment that I command you today, it's not too hard for you. Stop complaining. 200-something laws, that's not hard. I mean, I tell my kids that sometimes. I'm like, the chore list is like this long. Come on. Right? But God's list was much longer than that. It's not too hard for you, neither is it far off. What do you mean it's not far off? Think of a, a, a parent who says, I want you to do what I tell you to do, and then doesn't tell them what you're supposed to do. Think of an employer that's like, I want you to do your job, 
Monday through Friday, every day, or you're fired and never gives you a job description. That's a messed up employer. <laughs> you're going to get fired. You don't know what to do. God is like, I didn't leave you guessing. I gave you the sheet. I gave you the sheet so you can follow it. You didn't have to come get it. I came and brought it to you. Verse 12, it's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. We'll stop there. That's a lot. But you understand the dilemma. The dilemma is, on one hand, God is saying, if you obey me, you'll get all these blessings. If you don't obey me, you won't get the blessings. And he's saying, it's, it's not hard. Let me, I, I gave it right to you. I wrote it in tablets. We put it down. The prophets wrote it down. You, you study it. You memorize it. You don't have to go all the way up to heaven to get it. You don't have to cross the sea or go down to the depths of the sea to try to retrieve it. I brought it to you. And so that's why Paul, in Romans 10, now takes this verse to explain what that passage in Deuteronomy 30 was really getting to this entire time. It doesn't contradict Paul. Paul is actually using it to show you what it was always pointing to the entire time. Back up to verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Can I just pause there a second? Are we supposed to read the Old Testament with lenses that show us Christ? That's what Paul just did. When we just read Deuteronomy 30, did you see anything about Christ? Did you see a prophecy about a Messiah? No, but Paul is saying, it is a prophecy about the Messiah. Why? I use the analogy of the employer that doesn't give a job description. That's going to be a problem, right? A good employer gives a job description. A great employer comes alongside you and mentors you so that you can fulfill that job description. Bad employer hires you, doesn't describe the job. Good employer hires you, describes the job, but leaves you to it. A great employer hires you, describes the job, and spends time with you so you can do the job, so that you don't fail the job. God is the greatest. He's the greatest employer. He's the greatest father. He's the greatest head of a covenant. Because what Deuteronomy 30 was pointing at was, hey, you can do it. I brought it to you. But what leaves you scratching your head is what you didn't bring to me, though, God, was the ability. If you look back at, I probably should have asked you to keep your finger there, but you can just pay attention and listen. All of the times that Deuteronomy itself hints to the impossibility of keeping God's law. He says at the top of chapter 30, he doesn't just talk about obedience in general. He says in verse 2 that you're supposed to command what I tell you to do with all your heart and with all your soul. <laughs> so you can do the action, but you didn't do it with your heart, right? 
When you tell your kid, I want you to go upstairs, and they go upstairs, but they go upstairs like this. They went up the stairs, they obeyed the letter of the command, but if you're a good parent, you probably followed them up those stairs and at least had a conversation about that. God's saying, not only do you have to obey the commands that I give you, every single one of them, every jot and tittle, as Jesus puts it in Matthew 5, but you have to obey it a certain way. With some of your heart, with a little bit of your heart, you have to at least kind of like it. You've got to love it with all your heart and with all your soul. Everything is put into that action so that you can live, so that you can be prosperous. He communicates it again in verse Six, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. Did you see the promise? I brought the law to you, but what you don't have right now, I'm going to also bring you. And it's a change of heart. And when you get this heart change, this heart surgery that he promises in verse 6, he does it so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. There it is. So what Paul is saying is, remember Deuteronomy 30, you scripture memorizers? You people familiar with scripture? Good. In your zeal, you familiarize yourself. You remember Deuteronomy 30 where God says you have to obey my commands in order so that you can live. You'll also remember that he promised he'll change your heart so you can do it. Before he changes your heart, you can't do it. But when he changes your heart, now you do it. That's why it doesn't make sense for the Christian. Oh, I've got Jesus now. I don't care about the law. The reason why you have Jesus now is to fulfill the things that you're supposed to fulfill. You couldn't do it before. It's not that we don't care about the law. It's that it's fulfilled in Christ so that we can do it. He emphasizes again in verse 15. See, I've already set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments that I command you by loving the Lord your God walking in his ways, keeping his commandments, keeping his statutes and his rules. The love comes first, and you can't have that love for God's laws unless he changes your heart. And what Paul is saying is in the Old Testament, they didn't have to go to heaven to get the law, and they didn't have to go to the depths of the sea to get the law. God brought the law to them. And just like they didn't have to go up or down to get the law, they didn't have to go up or down to get the power and the heart change needed to complete the law, and that's why he reads it Christologically. Verse 6, the righteousness that's based on faith says, now he's quoting Deuteronomy 30, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, in other words, to bring Christ down. He's saying, you didn't have to ascend to heaven because that's Christ's job. Who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? You didn't have to do that. Christ did it. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Faith is that heart surgery that's needed to put you in the place that you need to be to have the righteousness of God and to pursue it with love and with your heart and with your soul. How does that start? Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there he's going back to this, this thing that Jesus accomplished because we can't reach heaven. He raised Jesus from the dead. You will be saved at the end of verse 9. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Not do a bunch of laws and you'll be saved. Believe in Jesus. Confess that you're a sinner. Confess with your mouth that you're unable to do these laws. 
and that Jesus is what you need to do it, then you'll be saved. And then look at verse 10. Now, what's the new reality? For with the heart, one believes, and with the heart, one is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. The heart and the mouth match after this heart surgery, after this faith that you've received. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There's no distinction between the person who already had the law and memorized it and the person who never heard of it. There's no distinction between the person who grew up in church and the person whose first Sunday, I'm like, turn to Deuteronomy, and they're looking around. They don't know where to turn. God is saying there's no distinction to background or privilege or how much law you've kept up to this moment. In this moment now, you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're in the same position as anyone else who places their faith in Jesus Christ. And God positions your heart to now pursue righteousness by faith. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The point of this passage is that God's law is good. God's law reveals his heart and reveals what he likes and reveals his pleasure. But we cannot fulfill that on our own. We should be zealous for it, and we should love it. We should read Scripture, every jot and tittle, interested in what pleases God and what God is like and what he expects of me. But if we stop there, we don't have it. What we do is we come to a point where all of these jots and tittles expose how I can't do it and how I am alienated from God. Then God steps into your life and does something in your heart where you have what is called faith. And you confess, I I can't do it on my own, but I see Jesus there, born, cross, tomb, resurrection, ascension. I see what Jesus did. When I couldn't go get it, he did it. He did it on my behalf. Something happened in your heart in that moment. And now, now, you can use that zeal for good. To understand God's law and to read Deuteronomy 30, for example, with new lenses, with new eyes, and go, oh, (laughs) that's what's happening. Because apart from Christ, Deuteronomy 30 is impossible. Deuteronomy 30 should frustrate you. If you don't have Christ, here's God saying, keep all my laws and keep it perfectly in your heart every single time and I'll bless you. That means you will never get blessing. And then here comes Jesus in Matthew 5 and you expect him to go, hey, forget that. I got you. He goes, hey, you better keep it better than the Pharisees. I love the law. I didn't come to get rid of it. I came to fulfill it. The law is great. Matthew 5 should frustrate you. How in the world am I supposed to exceed the righteousness of even the Pharisees who were so good at keeping rules. The answer is, come to me, you who are heavy laden. My yoke is light. He didn't say there's no yoke. It's a bearable yoke. You're able to do it. Why? Because I empower you to do it. And compared to the treadmill that never goes anywhere of constantly doing good works, and doesn't get you the righteousness, this is different. All of God's laws pointing to Christ so that he can be the fulfillment of the law on behalf of us, on our behalf, so that we can live it. So that we can live it according to a righteousness that's based on faith, he says in verse 6. A righteousness based on faith. 
Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one upon whom we call to be saved. Next time, uh, we're going to look at the rest of the passages and talk about this call going out to everybody else. But we need to understand it here first. Before we can communicate the gospel to other people, we need to understand the gospel for ourselves. And the gospel is not do a bunch of stuff. Nor is the gospel don't have to do anything. God got it. Don't worry about it. The gospel is do a bunch of stuff. Can't do it? Come to Jesus. He fulfills it for you, so now go get it. Now go do it. And we live with zeal for God that's not out of ignorance, but out of revelation that Jesus Christ has given us what we need, that heart surgery promised in Deuteronomy 30, so we can love the Lord our God with all our hearts. So let's, let's love him. Let's love him by doing what he tells us to do. Let's pray.